Let's uh, pray. Our Father, we would like to thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. The actions of Moses remind us of someone very familiar. Someone who, who goes by the name of Jesus. Who makes it his daily and continuous effort to intercede for us even now. And based upon his intercession, Father, we ask you to grant to us the manna from your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So yesterday we uh, talked a little bit about um, holy priesthood and royal priesthood. And I tried to spend a little time developing those comments. And in and, uh, and terms of royal priesthood, we talked about um, Mephibosheth and the entrance into the nobility, into the throne room of, of, of David, and our granting of, of royalty and one move at the cross, and, and how that uh, sort of bespeaks to us of our actions, that we work and act in the name of the king, that our, our, our um, demeanor is reflective of the Savior. One of the things that happened after my failure at the hospital, many years later, a nurse became ill. Her name's Patty. Patty, I think, is a believer. Patty was near death at our hospital, and she was in the intensive care unit. I went upstairs from my ER. That hour of the day, it was quiet. And I went to Patty, and she was in the ICU, intubated and, and sedated. That means... You know, she was drugged up. I held her hand, and I prayed out loud for her in the ICU. By the time I made it from second floor to the first floor, the nursing staff had already called down to the ER and told them what I did. I literally walked into the room, or into the, to the nurse's station, and this lady, Mary Lynn, said, I think it's great what you just did to go up and pray for Patty. I didn't even know she knew I was gone. I did that in the name of the king, you know. Actually, it served as a platform because when Mary Lynn had her heart attack, I went to see her at the hospital. And guess what? She, re- she was open to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, we're, we act and live in a manner that bespeaks, that, that tells of the, of the nobility and the royal family in which we, we exist, royal priesthood. But we spent some time talking about holy priesthood, and we uh, talked about the term and its definition and its separation, and we talked a little bit about this, uh, this great sort of illustration and, and story of, of a family, uh, Aaron's family with Nadab and Abihu. We kind of walk through this, this idea of where they, they breached protocol. Was it something simple, but it was really important, wasn't it? See, the details do matter, don't they? And then how Aaron was, was uh, to, you know, hold your peace, hold your reaction, hold your emotion, your mourning, watch your decisions. And we talked about how this injunction, this instruction given about uh, alcoholic substances would not would so cloud their judgment and perhaps maybe misguided them and took the wrong kind of fire the wrong kind of coals and it was a deadly mistake and we talked about how those things 
around us can seem to corrupt the flesh or corrupt the soul and distort our spiritual decision-making. Before I go on, I want to just spend about 10 minutes on something that a lot of young people ask me about. And the, the topic that they ask me about is, Steve, how do, we, how do we handle the flesh? How does it work? Now, it's not a 10-minute conversation, but it's all the time I have, so we're going to try to take a stab at it. And I want you, if you're, if you're taking notes, especially young people, I want you to write this down. There will be an exam. And here's how it is. It says in the New Testament in Ephesians chapter 5, he says this, And do not be drunk with wine, which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. Remember that verse? Ephesians 5.18. Then after that, it says, Then you go ahead and sing in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, making a joyful melody unto the Lord. Remember that verse? All right. So what he's saying is is it all hinges on this idea of being filled with the Spirit. Now, filled with the Spirit is is not a complicated concept, but it's been made complicated. It's a very easy concept to understand, and the context dictates the understanding. The context is, as opposed to being filled with drink or that which would control you in an uncontrolled fashion, you now be controlled with something that would now bring you under a sense of temperance and, and, and order, the Spirit of God. And as I described to you, and many could testify, the effects of alcoholic beverage upon the human body, he says, in the opposite fashion, you be filled with the Spirit. The Spirit of God now controls you. And this book, uh, Dwight Pentecost wrote a book on um, the Holy Spirit. And he, in his book there, he writes um, as a chapter on being filled with the Spirit. And he gives us great word picture that has to deal with, with filling. And uh, in that uh, little paragraph, he talks about how the Word has a sense of um, coming from maybe the nautical world, the world of sailing. Now, I don't know if you notice this, but I'm really not uh, a sailor. I, I, it's maybe hard to see, but it's, I'm not. We were in the Bahamas, like Keith, Great place. Rex Rise Up should be in the Bahamas. I'm pretty sure that should be in the will of God. It's called Rise Up and Fish. Yes, yes. Spearfish. <laughs> but uh, what, what it was, was while we were there, there's this little miniature catamaran thing, you know, and, and so I know nothing about it. My son-in-law Googles it and figures out how to do it. He's like, build a shopping mall with a toothpick kind of guy, you know. And so he's, he get, figures it out, and, and, uh, and he gets the sail just right. And, and, and boy, I tell you, we, I got on that thing with him, and, and he's getting that sail, and it's flapping left and right, totally disorganized. And suddenly, it catches the wind, and that sail goes, woof, in perfect, perfect, beautiful, uh, a Boeing-like fashion. That word, filling, is what happened to the sail. That's, that's the image. And what he's saying is, the Spirit of God needs to dominate, per, excuse me, permeate, permeate and dominate every square centimeter of your, the fabric of your soul so that when that happens, the vessel, your life, can actually move across the planet, the spiritual course of your journey. Does that make sense? So, Really, it comes down to a sail that's submissive, right? Can you imagine that if that little, that little piece of fabric was stiff as a board? Well, it wouldn't do anything for the vessel. 
You see, what has to happen is there's a real sense of continuous submission, of continually dying to self in order that the Spirit of God may take up what has now been surrendered. That's pretty important. So if you're ever going to talk about dealing with the flesh and walking uh, and, and, and in, the, in the light of these things, it first begins with that in and of itself. But, number two, the sister passage in Colossians chapter, I believe it's chapter 2, I can't remember which chapter, it's the, maybe it's 3, the sister passage goes like this, now you be filled with the word of God and then you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, meaning if you're, fill, if you're singing over here in Ephesians and you're singing over here in Colossians, then what preceded the singing, which was being filled with the Spirit in Ephesians, must be equivalent to whatever is said that, that precedes the singing in Colossians. And that, that means that these two things must be the same. You know, if A equals B and B equals C, and, you know, A equals C is kind of the idea for you math majors, right? And so what he's saying is being filled with the Spirit is equivalent to being filled with the Word of God. How many of you ever tried to exist without a meal for, or without eating for a week? I do this little drill at home with the young people. I'll go to them and I'll say, how many of you, out of the possibilities of being in the Word of God this week, seven in total, how many of you are in the Word of God seven times? And in that little Sunday school class, you know, I have maybe one little kind of hand. Go, well, I, I almost made it. You know, I was, I was 6.1, you know. I said, that's good. That's good. You just skipped one meal. How about you? And finally, I get down to the guy. He says, well, I, was, I only read the Bible once. I said, that's fantastic. Only once. I would like you to not eat again physically and no McDonald's for one week, okay? How will you, ha- how will you survive? Well, I don't know. Still, I'll be pretty hungry. No, you'd be like dead, all right? That's how you would be. And the point is, is simply this. It's foolish for us to think that our physical bodies will survive, even a meal or two or a day, right? Do you ever try to fast? Anybody ever try to do that? Yeah, I, I, I try to fast. Three hours later, my head's going, kaboom, 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 right? I'm drinking water like no one's business. I'm going to the bathroom every 10 minutes, and I'm thinking, I'm never going to make it, you know. But a lot of times, that's how we do the Word of God. And, and how do you expect to survive like that? You can't survive like that. You see, the Spirit of God uses the Word of God to actually bring the surrender to your soul and not just leave you empty, but fill you with that which is the necessary spiritual sustenance for your well-being. That's point number two. All right, what's number three? Well, number three is a simple one. Do not give opportunity to the devil or opportunity for the flesh. That's in Ephesians 4. And I believe the other one is opportunity for the flesh. Where is that at? Galatians? I think that's in Galatians. The point is, is that there's an element of dealing ruthlessly with the opportunities which the flesh could easily take advantage. You know that... that uh, the, the, this kind of concept that comes out of the Proverbs. Don't go by the way of the house of the, of the immoral woman. Don't, go pa- don't even pass by. Go on the other side. Get away from the issue. The, the New Testament says it this way. Flee immorality. The word flee is like uh, the word um, uh, uh, being a... Um, uh, 
oh, what's the word? You're, you're, fleeing from the gov- you're fleeing from the law. Fugitive, thank you. That's the word I was thinking of. So, you, you, you know, when you're fleeing from the law, you, you're constantly hiding and, and, and covering your tracks and, and looking for the next safe place. You see, that's what he says. You treat immorality like it's, it's, uh, it's got a, 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 a death sentence on you, and you are running from that and fleeing in a manner which you're hiding from it. This is something necessary for the Christian life. That's, it's pretty simple. Listen, if, if you're... Uh, if you struggle with certain kinds of sins, then you put in things that, that prevent you from going that direction. You do things a certain way. We call those specific spiritual disciplines for your life. Not everybody might have that particular stumbling block, uh, and so you, you might have to set up different safeguards. Maybe you are a person who really loves the gadgets, and, and you're going to have to have some safeguards in there and, and build those things in and Discipline yourself in a certain way. Don't give opportunity for the flesh. What's the other one? Number four. It's called the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord causes one to turn away from evil. The eyes of the Lord go to and fro throughout the whole earth looking for those whose heart is loyal towards him. There's a, the eyes of the Lord are on the good and the evil. All are before him. There's a personal sense in which the individual believer must have a God consciousness that your heavenly Father is not some distance away. Your Father standing right there. How many of you ever tried to do something that was directly against your Father's stated opinion in his presence? That went well, didn't it? Yes. It went so well, my father said to me, go get me a board. We want to chat tonight. I'll never forget that. I was a little kid. I dragged my feet on the tricycle on the ground. He told me not to. I did it again right in front of him. I was dumber than a brick. And we had a nice discussion about that. I never forgot that. That was approximately 45 years ago, right? How many of you want to try that? You see, you got to have that God consciousness. People ask me, they say, Steve, will you help me be accountable? I cannot put enough safeguards in your life to make you, uh, to give accountability. Your ultimate accountability will be your God consciousness that you personally have with your heavenly Father. That's where it begins, and that's where it ends. And finally, number five, there is that element where we can help each other, right? Bear each other's burdens. And many a times we do that with tools of accountability. Some of us who use our computers, we have to have that, that software that notifies another person if you're on the wrong website. That sterilizes you. Somebody's watching. That's the point. But it's not meant to only be between a brother and a brother or a sister and a sister, which is, which is very helpful. Ultimately, your ultimate accountability is the fact that God is with you, watching you. All right, that'll be on the exam, so we'll move on. Okay. Turn, if you would, to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. I'm going to read the passage, and then we're going to talk about a few things today that have to deal with, um, with prayer and devotion. Let's pray, or let's move forward. 
You also as living stones, verse 5, are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. I'll stop right there because the point I want to, to look at is this idea of spiritual sacrifices, which in today's discussion, this morning's discussion, will focus upon devotion and intercession. And if we have time, we'll, we'll broaden it to, of course, uh, providing nourishment from the Word of God. But let's just focus on, on the first two, devotion and intercession. Now, if we look backward, which is what our pattern has been, we want to look back in the Old Testament and look at the Old Testament priestly orders and, and extract from them some principles. So what are the Old Testament priestly orders? Can anybody name one Old Testament priestly order for me? What's that? All right, which one? Levi, the Levitical priesthood. That's a big one. Takes up a majority of the Old Testament. Are there any other priest, priestly orders, uh, uh, orders of, of activity of this nature in the Old Testament? Melchizedek. Who said that? Melchizedek is right. The Melchizedekian order. It has only a few pieces of print in the Old Testament and the New Testament, but nonetheless enough there to certainly solidify the concept. Are there any other priestly orders in the Old Testament? Aaronic. Very good. Aaronic, or we would actually lump that into the Levitical, so we can certainly give you credit for that one. Uh, is there one more? You know, when I keep asking the question, it's obvious that you're not saying the answer I'm looking for. So. <laughs> That's a favorite teacher's technique to stall. See. All right. It's the patriarchal order. The patriarchal order. And this is where, back uh, before the law was given, where the, the head of house would really serve in somewhat of a priest-like activity. You say, well, Steve, where is that? Well, it goes back to Noah. And what, did, what was the first thing Noah did when the ark would settled on Ararat and they were able to get out? What was, what was the first thing he did? He had a party. No. What was the first thing? What was that? He built an altar. Correct. He built an altar. All right. And so if you look back in the Old Testament, you'll find that the very beginning uh, evidences of patriarchal priestly order is that these fellows are building altars. Anybody else in the Old Testament seem to have a preoccupation with that kind of activity? Abraham. Thank you very much. Turn to chapter 12 in Genesis. If you're taking notes, the passage of Moses building an altar was in chapter 8, verses 20 through 21. But again, for time's sake, let's just turn to Abraham. And I want you to just to trace with me a few things, okay? Notice that in verses 1 through 4, we have the instruction given by God for Abraham to move to the south, to Canaan. And in so doing, he takes a bit of his family, Sarai, and his nephew Lot, and a few others, and they leave uh, the... They, they, uh, they leave what they acquired in Haran, or they, they take it with them, and they go down, they go to Shechem. And look in verse 6, And Abraham passed through the land of the plate, to the place of Shechem, as far as the terebinth tree of Moreh. And the Canaanites were, there, were then in the land. And the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your descendants I will give this land. And there he built an altar to the Lord who appeared to him. Interesting, right? First thing this patriarchal priest does is he builds an altar to God. What, what, what does an altar symbolize? What does it mean? Well, if you look up the word, the, the, the root of it comes from the idea of a slaughter for sacrifice. It's voluntarily made, and it's, it's, it's voluntarily 
uh, demonstrated. In other words, you voluntarily bring that animal. Everything is done in a sense of I want to, not because I have to. It's a very, very unique concept. You ever do things because you want to do them, not because you have to? You know, when you, when you do things because you want to do them, you take a lot more care, a lot more energy, and a lot more attention to detail because it's what you want. It's something that, it, that, that you have passion for. But if you're doing things because you're told to do them and you have to do them, or if not, there'll be some consequences, then you know what you do. You tend to do the bare minimum, right? Just enough to get by. How many has ever done this in school? Yeah, I'm speaking something very familiar to all of us, right? And here's the point. The point is this. When we go to this concept of, of the patriarchal priest constantly making these altars, and I've only cited to you Abraham's number one altar, but you have some listed in verse 12, and you have one list, or excuse me, 12, 8, and uh, uh, 13, 1 through 4, and chapter uh, what is that? Oh, 13, 18. And then, of course, that famous one in Genesis chapter 22, which we'll get to in a minute. But the point is this. You're constantly making these altars. It's a voluntary expression. It's done with voluntary sacrifice. You have a vested interest. Your passion is at its height. You know what you call that? Devotion. Devotion. Spontaneous devotion. Part of what needs to make up a New Testament priest or priestess, a servant in this particular order of God, is clear and unadulterated devotion. That has to, we have to ask the question, what is your devotion like today? If I were to pull out my chemistry set, and if I were to take your zeal, and I were to put it in the crucible on the Bunsen burner, and I were to let it, let it bake in that environment and, and then carefully take it off with the tongs and let your zeal cool down. And if I were to do that and pour it out of the crucible onto the, onto the laboratory table, and I were to tap it gently like they do in, in all great bench research, and the layers would fall out. Then I would carefully measure the layers. I would like to ask the question for you and for me. How much is it a true devotion? I just pulled that illustration out of A.P. Gibbs's book, The Preacher and His Preaching. When I first read that, I couldn't get off the floor. Because the story as it's told in that book goes like this. And the great chemist of all time handed me his report with tears in his eyes. And he said, may God have mercy on your soul. And I wept as I read the report. Ninety parts, love of self. Two, or five parts, love for others. Five parts, love for his Savior. I've got to ask you a question. Is he just merely prominent in your life or is preeminent? You know where that terminology comes from? Well, it comes from Colossians, yes, but it comes from Revelation chapter 2. When our church was first struggling some 25 years ago, we went to, a, we went to the text of the Word of God and we said, Lord, we are so undone. What would you say if you wrote us a letter? The Spirit of God was working in our hearts, and it's, it's, as, it's as if he said, I wrote you seven already, why don't you read those? And so we did. And that became 
the series that changed our lives. Our assembly, it changed our lives. And the very first letter was the letter of the church of Ephesus. And in that letter, as you know, they did a lot of things right. But this one thing, not so good. And in that one thing, he says, I have this against you, that you have neglected your first love. And that word first comes from the same root word as the famous verse in Colossians that says in all things he might have preeminence. And so you could really say, I have this against you that you have left your most preeminent love. Which begs the question, has he become merely prominent in your love rather than preeminent? Or to say it another way, has the Savior only become one of your important loves, but not your most important love. Can you imagine what will happen when I get home on Sunday and I go in to see my wife and I get on my knee and I say to you, darling of my soul, heartbeat of my existence, pulse rate of my rhythm, you are one of my most important loves. Yeah, I can see how this is going to play out. You know, I don't know... I don't know where you came from, but you get back on that plane and go back where you came from, right? That's intolerable, isn't it? Intolerable for a marital situation. Can you imagine a young man proposing to his fiancée, you're one of my most important loves. Here's a ring to prove it. She said, go eat it. I'm not going to take that, right? And yet, it's, we fail to see how that devotion is in, that lack of devotion is intolerable for our Savior, this is what I think Abraham is in his patriarchal priesthood is teaching us. Let's turn to Genesis 22. This is a, obviously a famous passage. It's, it's really kind of a, if you look at the book of Genesis in this light, it, it's really kind of one of the critical, pivotal moments of this particular historical record. You know, we started out large with Adam and Eve and then large populations and we have focus on Noah and then uh, lots of population and then we have focus now on this family, Abraham, and the promises was given of, of how he would bless the earth and God would make him a great nation and those promises, of course, that have to deal physically with the property of, of, of the Middle East and all those things uh, expanded in, in, in ever-degreeing form. And of course, it, it culminates in the fact that uh, Abraham says, now listen, I, I don't get it. I don't have any children. You know, I guess this promise about many people and nations is going to have to be through a, my relative, right? And the Lord says, actually, no. You see, the miracle is going to be that you and your 90-year-old wife are going to have a baby. That's frightening just to think about that, by the way. I mean, if that happened, I could be in Nobel Peace Prize winner. I could put that in the medical journal, right? That'd be fantastic. Not for them, but for me. You know. But that, that, that's, that's amazing. And, of course, the point that he's making there is that it's not going to be because you willed it. It'll be, because, it'll be because I deemed it. I decided to do this, and I, and I will do this in a miraculous un, uh, a way untouchable by human fingers. Now we get this child, and he's Isaac, and he grows, and, and it, it appears to me that Abraham's life was one of constantly visiting the altars of God. And so they go to, he gets this instruction to go to Moriah. And notice, remember that story there, where, well, story right here, where he talks about uh, the place that they'll go which God had told him, and he says, now take your son, your only son, whom you love. I mean, those are unnecessary details in the transcript, Right? 
I mean, there's only like two people talking. It's God and Abraham, and, there's, and they both know they, he only has one son. Why all these details? Why all this extraneous, like, uh, uh, factual information? Well, because God is saying, just as it is for you, so it is for me. And just as painful it is for you to take your only son, so it will be for me. And just as, just as, as heart-wrenching as it is to raise a knife above a boy, so it will be for me. I understand that. I'm going to let you mirror that. That's what he was doing. And so we come to this moment where Abraham now takes all the posterity and all the hope and all the promise, and he's now going to to sacrifice him, which in and of itself is very out of character with God. Human sacrifice, that's not really part of the biblical record. That's not not a part of any sort of Levitical record. And so it, it would certainly strike me as God must be losing it, right? See, Satan would want him to think that. God has kind of had a wire tripped and, and, and something's wrong in the Godhead and he's call, asking me to do things which are, 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 are grotesque. Abraham didn't think that. Abraham came to this point where he said, you know, I don't know what God's thinking, but I choose to believe that God will keep his word. See, that's what Hebrews says, that in that moment when he had evidence to say that something's wrong with God, he said, uh-uh. I'm going to believe the character of God. This is the secret of the Christian life, you know. And I'm going to believe the character of God. And although I can't understand this commandment, I believe that his character will be true, that his promise will be kept, so that even if God has to uh, raise him from the dead, then that's what will happen. And up to this point, the truth of resurrection was not really well publicized. You see how much faith that was? Because he believed in the character of God. That's exactly what was being echoed in that prayer that our, Mo- that our brother Moses uh, 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 said to God during that chapter in Numbers. So, so we have this great event, and, and you can see the depth of the sacrifice and his own son and all the posterity and all the hope laid upon him. Devotion. You would not hold back your only son, your only begotten son. Devotion. Do you love me? Oh, I love you. Yeah, kind of. You, know you know what he's saying when he asked Peter that question? He said this, Peter, do you love me like I love you? I want to ask you that. Do you love the Savior like he loves you? See, that's one of the key features of the patriarchal priesthood. Now, the second thing I want you to take away from the patriarchal priesthood is that in the first three generations of Abraham and Isaac and and Jacob, did you notice how each one had to meet God at their own altar? Isaac grew up going with dad. Isaac knew the drill. He even said, dad, we've got this, we've got this, but where's the lamb for the burnt offering? How does he know that unless he had done it before? How does he know that unless it wasn't part of his normal upbringing? But when it came to the promise being then transferred over to Isaac, guess what? Isaac had to build his own altar in Genesis chapter 26. And Jacob had to build his own altar in Genesis chapter 35. And here's the point that I'm making. Every generation of us in this little amphitheater today has to have that personal moment where you and God meet, if I may, metaphorically speaking, meet at your own altar. You're not going to borrow your parents, and you're not going to borrow the churches, and you're not going to borrow your friends. You and God have a unique, isolated, personal meeting whereby you will decide, I will be devoted unto you for the rest of my life, or I will not. My question is, what are you holding out for? 
young people, this is it. In your life right now, of all the decisions that you make, this is the big one. This is the one that will count for eternity. Coming to Christ, devoted to Christ. And you have to understand that I know how easy it is to hide in the shadows of all these other spiritual men and women around you. Your parents, your aunts, your uncles, and, and, and your friends, and you be totally uh, uh, just coasting and playing the game. And I want you to know if you're playing the game, you're acting like it, but you're really not a believer. You're acting like you're committed, but you're really not committed. I want you to know today it must stop. Part of the thing of being a priest of God is it requires and demands your wholehearted devotion. Do you remember what Caleb said? He said this, And in that day, Jacob, I followed the Lord with my whole heart. Remember what David said to Solomon. He said, Solomon, when you get this temple and you follow it, I said, I want you to remember one thing. You follow the Lord with your whole heart. But I'm afraid that we're a generation that are, are quietly raising ourselves and growing up into spiritual things, thinking that part of the heart is as good as whole of the heart. And I want you to know it's intolerable to your Lord Jesus. He had to take Ephesus out, you know. He said, if you can't fix this, I'm going to have to remove you. He had to remove them. And if he had to do that with Ephesus, what do you think he will do with you? When we stood there in our little meeting, in our little church, having hearts that were distant from God, and we recognized that, we saw that, we preached that, and you know what that made us do? That made us crumble in his presence. And that's exactly what is involved with devotion when it comes to being a priest of God. I'd like to look at another patriarchal priest. I'm such a poor time manager. I believe that the watch is the enemy of all preaching. Thank you, brother. Yeah, you can quote me. But I'd like you to look, to look at Job just briefly. Job chapter 1. Now, Job obviously was a really godly man. He had lots of children, and I actually feel very comfortable with him. I would have enjoyed having dinner with his 4,000 kids. But anyway, it, it, it's, it, it's not that, that his size of the family appeals to me. It's his depth of character that really appeals to me. Now, notice, notice this in verse 2. And, and seven sons and three daughters were born to him. We have nine, so I figure we're on good pace, you know. And also his possessions were 70,000 sheep. Now that's where it falls out. We don't have 70,000 sheep, okay? We have 70,000 messes, okay? Our, our, our 7,000, excuse me, 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and a very large household. We can get that one. And so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. That's not so much with us. And his sons would go and feast in their houses, each on his appointed day. What's his appointed day? I would think that was his, was that? Birthday, exactly. You have an appointed day. We have so many kids and people in the house, we pretty much have birthday cake every month. I never get tired of it, right? And so each on their appointed day. Now look what would happen. And he would send um, and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And so it was, when the days of feasting, had run their course, that Job would send and sanctify them, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did regularly. 
You know what he was doing? He was interceding for them. Notice some of the features of what he did. He had concern about his family. Look at it. And so it was when the days of feasting to run his course, Job would sin and sanctify them. He had actual conscious concern for the members of his household. Fathers, I don't know about you, but do you ever have stretches where you actually wake up and you say, I don't think I prayed for my family this week. Have you ever had stretches where, where you, you think, I, I, haven't, I haven't been thinking of, uh, of my child at camp and what God is working in their hearts with, you know? You see, one of the big keys of a patriarchal priest in their order is that they had concern for spiritual things, and in particular, the things that concerned others' lives. And then it was, in this case, it was in Job's very family. Now notice, it was conscientious. It says this in, in the next portion, that he would rise early in the morning, Right? He was conscientious about this. I don't know how you think around here, but I'm in that room, and boy, I tell you, it gets pretty dark in that nice little cozy room, doesn't it, Keith? And I don't know about you, but sometimes that alarm goes off, and I'm thinking, I think it's 3 a.m. I'm pretty sure, right? And I have this, it's like the bed has claws and just pulling the flesh off my, you do not want to get up. No, stay supine. It's what you do. But one of the most important things in life to do is to actually roll out of bed and find that closet of prayer, isn't it? This is what he was doing. He was conscientious in it. Now notice else what else he did. He was cognizant of God. He said, listen, perhaps they actually cursed God. I'm worried about this because God should not be cursed. And I can't predict what they did when I wasn't there. I can't say what they did in their hearts. All I know is that there would be a breach against my heavenly Father, my God in heaven, and that's intolerable to me. Do you ever, are you ever bothered about, that, uh, 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 about this possibility to the depth that you would rise early in the morning and make intercession for such? I'll tell you, if you haven't been bothered by that, what will happen is maybe one under your care will, will falter. And I'll tell you, you'll get up early, and you'll stay up late, and you'll be before the presence of God. I speak from great experience. Right? This is what it is. Have you ever wept over the assembly this way? Have you ever wept for your brother or sister who are going through a divorce and plead with God to intervene in that way? This is what he's talking about. What do you think a priest does with part of his time, or if not all of his time? He intercedes. This is what he's saying. He was cognizant of the, of the affront that it would be towards God. Moses was echoing the same thing. This is your reputation at stake. Every man of God does this. Moses did it. Abraham did it. Remember that thing when they, they got together and, and the angel of the Lord came and they, he, uh, Abraham served him dinner at the goat and all that kind of stuff. And, 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 and now they're talking like man to man, friend to friend. Should I tell Abraham what I'm going to do? It's kind of, you know, thinking in the head. I think I will, because he's going to order his family. And so he says, I'm going to go down to Sodom. You know, the the outcry of their wickedness has has been heard, and I'm going to see if it's really so. (laughs) That seems so odd to me. I'm going to go see if what I know is really true, like I already know. But he's having a conversation in real time with a finite person, And the finite person goes like this. Could I speak a word in your ear? So gracious. Could I speak a word in your ear? Is it true, or if there were but 50 righteous in the city, would you judge the 50 righteous with the wicked? No, I wouldn't do that. You got me there. I wouldn't do that. Well, may I I say one more thing with all, 
all humility. What if there were 45? And you know how it goes in 40 and 30 and 20 and 10, right? And in that course of discussion, he says, far be it from you to judge the righteous with the wicked. You know what Abraham's doing? He's doing the Moses thing here. I know you. I know about you. I know how you think. I know how you act. And therefore, I ask in light of that knowledge, would you be so gracious to this, to this one family of 10? And would you bring them out? Would you, well, you wouldn't do it together. Surely not. I know you. Don't you love it when your child knows you that well? Can I tell you a little story about this guy right here? I've told you, you've heard it, right? I gave that message a few weeks ago. It was Father's Day a couple years back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, shh. And uh, Father's Day, you know, it's Sunday morning. I'm usually working Saturday evening. And Father's Day on a Sunday in the Price household could be next to a near-death experience. And we're all trying to get things done. I'm trying to be especially nice being sleep-deprived. And, and, you know, to honor Dad, I don't want to be a lunatic. And so Janet has this very quick but nice breakfast where we have these Pillsbury orange, orange Danishes. And, you know, they're probably like 4,000 calories a bite. And we're all sitting down there. And William, he goes, Dad, I got you a present. Oh, okay. And it's right there. And it's Father's Day. And he's got a happy birthday bag on the table. And inside, he's got Merry Christmas paper. <laughs> and inside the Merry Christmas paper is a plastic Easter egg. <laughs> I was proud of him. You missed no holidays. That's an efficiency of all pricehood. And he goes, open the egg. Open the egg. I said, okay. I cut that out, get it in front of me, a very dramatic. Crack it open. And Taco Bell sauce falls out on the table. <laughs> He goes, he says to me, this is our funny story together. He says, you never know when you might need that because I know how much you love Taco Bell and you might need that when you're traveling this weekend. <laughs> I will. Thank you. I still got that packet. It's on my desk and nobody touches it, okay? <laughs> the point is this, look at that. I just love that kind of thing between my son and I where he knows me so well he's able to do things that would reflect that that intimacy and this is exactly what prayer is about you see this is what Job was doing this is what Moses was doing this is what Abraham was doing and this is what the priest in the New Testament should be doing oh I was talking to a brother how many people come to prayer meetings six six I don't know what you think but I think we cannot survive without being men and women that pray, okay? I, I want to say that really clearly. Prayer is that divinely authorized activity that God or that Jesus Christ illustrated for us, taught on it, and actually has the tremendous effect of transforming your soul. How do I know that? Not my will, but yours be done. That's a transformation of soul, isn't it? That's your will being laid down and his will being taken up. That's the process of becoming more like Christ, isn't it? You know, not too many weeks ago, we had that national week of prayer. It was hosted in our assembly. And you know what? All the saints, it was a big event for us. 
Lots of people coming in, lots of stuff. And as soon as the National Week of Prayer ended on Friday, we were hosting a conference and in in, um, responsible for our conference in a, a local community, a local college. So we had double duty. We were busy. And after we got through, when it, Friday came, all the saints in the assembly came to the elders, and this is what they said. When can we do this again? Not if. They said, when can we do this again? We don't want any other church in the United States to have this opportunity. We want it. I said, okay. <laughs> you see, what we did is when we gathered to pray, it's like I heard 30 10-minute messages all day long. As I watched men weep before their heavenly Father and cry out to God for our, because of our barrenness of spiritual productivity, because of our lack of love for one another, for, because of our fact that we have failed to love him with a first love, that our families have been disintegrating, that we know relatives and even our own family where our children are off and, our, and, and we have divorce that it looms heavy on the horizon. And I watched and heard and, and been and wept with men and women who cried out to their God, God, this is wrong. Far be it from you to let your children go hungry. Are you not moved with compassion when the sheep are out without, are acting like if there's no shepherd? Oh, God, shepherd us today. If there's one thing we got to be, it's men and women that pray. Have you ever studied the Lord's Prayer? Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Right? Father. I don't know. If, if it was in the Aramaic, it would be Abba Father. Be like Daddy. I, I, I want to call you with a term of endearment. I, I want that intimacy. I want that with my children, right? I want them to come to me and, and, and call me Daddy. And we have this, this unique bond. I'll never forget. We, we raised our kids to say yes, sir, and yes, ma'am. Right? Now, why did we do that? Because we're fanatical military police. That's why we did that. And as I got older, my oldest daughter, she's getting married. She's 20, 21. And I said to her, well, what do you, what do you think about that? She goes, uh, I asked her a, a question about doing something. And she goes, yes, sir. And I said, oh, wait a minute, sweetie. You can call me daddy now. She goes, yes, sir, daddy. <laughs> you know, I, I wanted to get away from the, the, the coldness of that and the respect. I mean, we're, we're this. This is what God is saying. I want my children to pray. Seek my face. I want my children to come to me like I am their father and treat me like their father. And I want the joy that it is with me interacting with you, you asking and me coming, and we come together. I want that. I've always wanted that. And when I ask you to pray, it's not because you're trying to put in some time, spiritual coins into the, into the, into the Coke machine of heaven so that you can pull the lever and get out some answer. It's because God enjoys the intimacy of the two interfacing in the throne room. I had to close with this because time is gone. You remember that story about Elisha? Oh, yeah, I do. Good. I haven't told you which story yet, but it's a story about the axe head. It's kind of fascinating to me. You know, Elijah, Elisha is hot off the trail of Elijah, who actually went up into the tornado, and there's Elijah or Eli, Elisha, and they... He comes back across, and the school of the prophets say, hey, we need a bigger building. Let's go down to the Jordan River. We'll cut some trees down. We'll bring them back. We'll build a bigger building. And he says, well, you go ahead. They said, no, no, no. Why don't you come with us? He goes, all right. So he goes down to the Jordan River, and they're all hacking these trees. You know, whack, whack, and whoa, 
And the axe head goes, just like that. All right? And the poor guy goes, man of God, it was borrowed. First of all, boy, those guys must not get along too well. You know, It was borrowed. And then the man of God says this, where did it fall? Okay, okay, just a minute, stop the tape. If you just split the River Jordan and you got twice of the measure of the Spirit of God that was on Elijah, do you really think you need to ask where did it drop? No. You know what he's saying? Did you have a boo-boo? Show me where it hurts. Show me your boo-boo. I'm going to come, I'll take a look at your boo-boo. See, that's this whole idea. God enjoys that. I do. Little Gracie comes up, Daddy, oh, like her leg's going to fall off. Oh, it right here. And I look at that. You know, I'm getting old, but I know there's nothing on that leg. And I said, does that hurt, honey? Yeah, it hurts really bad. I said, well, do you want me to kiss? Yeah, I do. Okay, I'll kiss it. Is that better? It's great, Dad. Thanks. I love that. Prayer. <laughs> Sorry. I get excited. Prayer. The priest of God today is meant to make intercession. Let's pray. Our Father, today we come actually a little undone. We've been anemic in conversing with you, and we've suffered loss for that. Oh, change us, Father. Change us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.